Hello, friends. How are you? I'm okay. Happy to be here. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, we have been in the book of Genesis. I'm laughing because I'm trying to decide if I want to tell you a story or not. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. We'll see, we'll see. Uh, let, <laughs> let me read the first passage. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible, if you're new here, um, and it's Probably not what you think it is if you're not familiar with the Bible. You probably imagine what the book of Genesis is. It's probably not what you think it is. Uh, I'm going to read the first passage, just five verses. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. Okay, so we've been seeing a theme of God's, this is what we've called this series on Genesis, God's beloved, parentheses, dysfunctional family. And, well, there's more of the same this week. <laughs> I'll tell you that. And... Okay, I'm going to just go here and tell you a story. <laughs> um, so this story, Judah, um, the, the name for the Jews, um, that comes from the name Judah, um, the, the tribe of Judah, the Jews. And if there was ever this like sense of family pride... It kind, it's, if you've been with us for the book of Genesis, that sense really should have already been shattered. But this week, even more so, in the sense of the family pride that comes from anything other than God's grace. There is a sense of family pride, and it's because God loves us and God's with us, but it's not because we're special. And this is one of those stories that has to stand as a little bit of a, uh, I want to use the word almost embarrassment, Okay, I'll tell you this story. <laughs> I wasn't going to do this. Um, so my brother got married uh, a little over a year ago. And he was really, he was really very anxious about my father giving a speech at the wedding. Because my father is just notorious for saying really embarrassing things. <laughs> and so he told he wanted... He wanted to know beforehand what my dad was going to say, and my dad didn't go for that, you know. And everything was going good in the speech. <laughs> everything was going good. And then um, somehow my dad brought up this story <laughs> of how, don't ask me how it fit in with the wedding speech, but he told the story of how when his grandfather came here from Italy, his grandfather came here from Italy by himself, and his plan was to work and save up enough money to send money back to the old country so that they could send his fiance. And, well, he worked, he got the money, and he sent it back, and instead of sending his fiance, they sent his niece. So he married her. <laughs> and... And uh, he told that story, and my brother-in-law looks at me and he says, I wasn't expecting incest to come up in the, in, the <laughs> in the speech. And it was this funny moment where my dad found a way to embarrass my brother again. And it's the same, it's the same line where, uh, you know, our family's here, an introduction to our family, and... Yeah, there's some colorful aspects here. It's, it's not a rosy, perfect picture of family um, function. And, well, so it is with, uh, as we're getting into the story of Judah. Because, oh, the, incest might be the word. I hesitated to use that word because it's a weird word for church service. But um, 
Yeah, like I was saying, the book of Genesis is probably not what you think it is. Um, okay, let's talk about Judah. So Jacob, the name means Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, you might remember. And Judah came at a high point in his mother's life, if you recall. His mom's name was Leah. She had a point of her life where she saw God and she praised him and she realized God is the source of my joy. And she named this boy Judah. And his name means praise. And we know what God is doing in the book of Genesis. We're seeing this family line. And in each generation, in each generation, there is one child that is set apart. So the whole family has this special blessing of God. But with each generation, there's one child who's going to carry something special. And because we're looking at the Bible from our point of view of knowing the big story, we know that the one that is special is the one who's ultimately going to bring forth the Savior of the world. And I'll tell you in advance, of the 12 boys that Jacob has, the Savior, the King, the special child, the special blessing is going to go to Judah. Okay? But if you've been with us this far in the book of Genesis, you know that there's a problem. So uh, when Jeff Day preached two weeks ago, maybe you remember this. What was Judah doing last time we saw him? Last time we saw Judah in the book of Genesis, he was selling his brother Joseph into slavery. Judah was the leader of that. That was Judah's idea. So what was Judah doing the last time we saw him? Uh, human trafficking of a family member. Like I say, there's a lot of dysfunction in God's special family. So if there's dysfunction in your family, um, you've come to a good place. Because God's family, it's, there's a precedent for that. Um, and I suspect that the dysfunction in your family probably doesn't reach the level of human trafficking. So anyways, that's what Judah was up to last time we saw him. Here's the good news. God loves us right where we're at. Here's the better news. He loves us too much to keep us there. Meaning, he loves us right where we're at with all our messed up dysfunction, but his love, his plan is to redeem and transform and to bring us to a place where we can say the name of Judah and we can say there's something special here. Because uh, right now, Judah is not the man of God, the lion of Judah, the leader that we need him to be. And so Judah... Um, Judah is going, it's, we read it, it's, it's in the first verse. He goes, uh, he goes to a place called, you know what? Pause. This is probably a good time for me to pray. Father God, would you guide my words so that I could speak in a way that shows you for who you are, your, your character, your love, your goodness, your grace, and let us all be encouraged and strengthened and, and drawn to you perhaps for the very first time in our lives, drawn to you. Or maybe we've been drawn to you many times, Lord. Let us be drawn to you again and, and just revived in our spirit um, to, to just strengthen us with, with joy for this week so that we can, we, can, we can live our lives knowing who you are and who we are in you, Lord. So guide us in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so in verse 1, it says, uh, let me read this again. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Okay, a couple things. Um, Judah is, at this point in the story, he is doing his own thing. Um, this idea, he's leaving his brothers. It says there, Judah, verse 2, there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. Um, the, the specific Hebrew wording is something we've seen before. It says that Judah saw her um, and uh, he took her um, to be his wife. But just the combination of words, it, if, if you know, it, it goes back and it reflects the words of the first sin uh, when she saw and she took. And there's this idea, again, that Judah is leaving. He left his brothers, the special family of God, and he's doing his own thing in the land of Canaan. And he marries a Canaanite woman which there was, some, there was some words about why you shouldn't do that. And anyway, so Judah is really living independently of this great promise. 
He has this great promise, but he's not really putting his trust in it, which is a theme we've seen. Um, so anyways, he goes to Adullam, and there's something really interesting about this specific city. Something else about a thousand years later, so about a thousand years before Jesus, but a thousand years after this, the Bible is very, very big, um, very broad, far-reaching. So a thousand years later, something is going to happen in the same city that I think we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. But um, I'll tell you in advance, Adullam is where David became a leader. And, well, this city here where Judah is, I can tell you he's going to emerge as a different man, as someone who can be Someone who can be a leader. Because right now, he is a leader, but a leader of, of evil. Last time we saw his leadership capabilities, it was leading his brothers to sell Joseph. So, um, so he goes. He's got this friend um, named Hira. Maybe he'll come up again. He, he left. So he left his brothers, and he kind of joined himself to this Canaanite buddy. And him and this buddy are living this life uh, and well, he has a couple kids, uh, verse 6 says, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. So this is actually kind of surprising in the story of Genesis. Um, there's no explanation of why Ur was wicked. It just says uh, he was wicked in God's sight, and God... Put him to death. God killed him. Um, why is this surprising in the Genesis narrative thus far? It's surprising because what we've seen thus far is when it comes to God's special family, the special family of Abraham, Judah is the, the grandson of, or the, the, the great-grandson of, when we saw this special family, we've seen that God doesn't treat this family the way that he treats others in that, um, what do the scriptures say? Blessed is the man whom the Lord will never count his sin against him. That's the special promise. The, the word we've seen is covenant. That's the special covenant promise that God's people have. But then you have Judah's son Ur getting put to death. And really we can make sense of this when we look at the whole Bible. So there's this account in Matthew chapter 3 where John the Baptist begins to preach. John the Baptist was the, the forerunner who prepared the way for Jesus. John the Baptist is preaching, and some, some uh, uh, Pharisees come, some religious leaders who were Jewish, for sure, children of Abraham, offspring. And uh, what does John the Baptist say to him? He says, uh, you children of snakes, he calls them. He says, you children of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He says, live lives that show repentance. Live lives that show that you have faith in your heart, that you're seeking him. And hear this part. And he says, and don't comfort yourselves by telling yourself that you're Abraham's children. Because I tell you that God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. In other words, what we see here is to be a child of Abraham is about more than just a bloodline. Your bloodline doesn't guarantee anything, is what we see. Instead, to be a child of Abraham is something that is of the heart. It is to have the faith of Abraham. And interestingly, we're going to see in this story that you have a woman who is not of the bloodline of Abraham, um, who, is, who is of the Canaanites, who shows herself to be a child of Abraham. So anyways, Ur, Ur is put to death, and the conclusion we can make is, even though he, he is a bloodline descendant of Abraham, in his heart he's not in covenant. He doesn't really believe in him. doesn't have that heart connection. So uh, Judah's firstborn, he's dead. Um... Then Judah said to Onan, his, his secondborn, 
Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. By the way, I apologize. I realize we don't have children's, <laughs> we don't have children's class today. So you might have some interesting conversations with your kids afterwards, but I don't know, I just feel like the Bible is less graphic than most of what's on TV these days, so, um, but we're just going to tell it as it is here. Uh, so uh, this needs to be explained. Judah says to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty as a brother-in-law. So in, um, in the context, the historical context, you needed to have a descendant. To die without a descendant was to die with your family line just being over. And so the firstborn, Ur, he's dead and he's got no descendant, and that's a tragedy. And so what they would do, and this wasn't limited to, um, this wasn't only an Israelite custom. This was a custom of, of the Middle East at the time. Um, it was called being a kinsman redeemer. The idea was that if your brother died, um, you were to then marry his widow and the firstborn child, the first son that would be born from that union would legally not be yours. That son would actually be the descendant of your deceased brother. And so Judah is telling Onan to do the honorable thing. This was an honorable thing to do that. In fact, I think it's um, Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says that if a brother is not willing to do that, then the widow goes to her brother-in-law, and she spits in his face, she takes his sandal, and she slaps him with it, and he is forever known as the household of the unsandaled. I mean, which is kind of weird, but the idea is it's shameful. It is shameful to not provide a descendant for your brother. So Onan, on the surface, in the eyes of everyone, in the eyes of his father and in the eyes of his people, he's doing the right thing. He's doing the honorable thing. Yes, I will marry her. But it says he knew that the child wouldn't be his. And if the, the, the child isn't his, you know, there's more to it. The firstborn gets more stuff, gets a greater inheritance. He wants, he wants that for himself. So in the eyes of the people, he's doing the right thing. But when he sleeps with um, Tamar, he's says, spilling his seed on the ground. Um, and God saw this. He gets killed also. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to explain. A, I'm going to go a little farther into this than probably I need to, but maybe it's helpful. So there's actually a phrase. This guy that just got killed, he's called Onan. There's actually something called Onanism. Does anyone know what that is? I'm just curious. Okay, maybe this isn't a conversation that even needs to be had, but I'm a, I started it, so here we go. Um, so there are some people that would say there is an idea that um, in any context, <laughs> in any context, seed falling on the ground is not good. And that's like Onanism, and that's why some people would say there are some religious traditions that teach birth control, for example, is always wrong. And they would say because of, we see that because God put Onan to, dead, to, to death for spilling his seed on the ground. And I just have to say, that is a really awful, that's a really awful interpretation from my perspective, and I think it's really clear Onan was killed not for just spilling his seed on the ground, but for the hard intentions of why he did it. Um, in the eyes of the people, he was the good, religious, moral person, but secretly, he was, he was causing pain. He was, he was hurting people. He was hurting Tamar. Um, and, and he was living a, a hypocritical life. So to take this story and to therefore say, birth control is wrong is, to me, an example of a really awful uh, interpretation. You might have your own thoughts about birth control, and that's a longer conversation for another time, but 
This is the passage, when people say that it's wrong, this is the passage that they often go to, and I just think that's just a really bad interpretation of what I think the text is saying. So anyways, uh, uh, one thing you are going to see in this story, when it comes to morality, God looks at the heart. We often look at, uh, what do the scriptures say? Man looks at outward appearances. We look at like the deeds um, on the surface. God looks at the heart. And, and we're really going to see that even more as we keep going in this story. So, um, so we got Ur, he's dead. Onan is dead. Um, so now Tamar's a, a, a widow again. What's going on? Um, so then verse 11 Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Okay, so Judah's kind of superstitious. He thinks that his two boys dying are on account of her. He thinks there's something wrong with her. And he thinks, I don't want to give my third son to Tamar because then he's going to end up dead. So what Judah is doing is also pretty cruel towards Tamar because it's keeping her in this place of limbo. Instead of just telling her, you know, we're done here. I don't want, I don't want you to be part of our family, which also would be hurtful. Instead of doing that, he says, go home to your father's house. He says that she's essentially betrothed to his third son, Shayla. But he doesn't really plan on giving Shayla to her. So she's just stuck. She can't move on with her life. Um, so she's, she's stuck. And that's what, what Judah does. And, well, let's keep reading. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep and his friend Hira the Adelamite went with him. So here's something I just want to add. Judah, Judah's on a course that's not good. Like I say, Judah is pretty much doing his own thing, and he's not, um, he's not, he's not walking with the Lord. And he left his friends, and there's this mention, this continual mention of Hira, and I think it's there for a reason. It's there to just tell us, when you separate from God's people, it usually means that you're, you're partnering with someone else. And there's a long conversation that we could have about how we're called to be missionaries in this world. Christians are called to be missionaries. So in this sense, we're called to make friends with people of the world in the sense of to be missionaries, to show God's love. But here's where it becomes a problem, where as God's special people, instead of living as missionaries. Instead, we are partnering with people of the world for the sense of, of fellowship. Um, there's a lot we could say about this, and there's a lot that the Bible, the, the Old Testament, and especially the New Testament, says about this, about how light should not partner with darkness. And that might sound kind of judgmental, but once more, it isn't. Uh, our call is to be light in the world, and our call is to love the world. Call us to love, to love the darkness like Jesus did in the sense of love the people who are caught in darkness and to go as light. But instead, if, if instead of doing that, we go and we just make friends with people of the world just for our own desire for friendship, which we all have, a lot of times that's simply a fruit of not actually living for him. And so... That's why I think you see this friend mentioned more than once. Um, Judah, in, he's left his brothers, and he's kind of partnered with this, this Canaanite fellow. And so anyways, um, Judah's wife died, and Judah, is uh, he mourned for her. And now he's going to, to shear sheep, which apparently was a time of kind of like partying. When you would shear sheep, you'd often, you know, do a bunch of drinking. Where I come from... Uh, in Wisconsin, that's similar to like deer camp, where people, meaning when people go hunting, it's just like a time where guys go and they, you know, drink together, and it's it's more than just it's it's about more than just the deer hunting. It's it's a whole cultural thing, and same thing here. Sheep shearing was just a time to to party, and well, um, 
Verse 13, when Tamar was told your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shela had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Okay, um... So, what is going on here? Um, well, Tamar sees that the, the, the third son that has been promised to her has not been delivered. And so, again, she's stuck in this place of limbo. And Tamar, I'll let you know in advance... She's going to do something that I don't think anyone would say is good in and of itself. But Tamar is joining, um, Tamar is, is, how do I say this? Okay, uh, was it last week we talked about the Gibeonites? I think it was. Uh, if you remember the Gibeonites, do you remember what they did? They used deception to link themselves with God's special people. And even though the deception wasn't good, it was a move of faith. They wanted to be part of that special family. And then we also uh, brought up Rahab. If you know her story, she was another Canaanite. And she also, she used deception to link herself with God's special family. And in the New Testament... Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, she's listed among what is called the hall of faith, people who did great things by faith. It's very strange. It's very strange in our view of the world and of people, we often want to make character judgments based on things on the surface. And we want to say, this is bad, this person's bad, and again, what Tamar is going to do, I would agree it's not a good thing. But Tamar is more of the hero of the story than anyone else. Um, and what she's doing here, well, and you can see she's disguising herself as a prostitute. So the way that it worked, if, um, if, your husband died, and your brother-in-law isn't going to marry you, or maybe there is no brother-in-law, the way that it would work is you need to find another blood relative. You need to find another blood relative to marry to bring forth an heir. Tamar is someone who I think recognizes, even though Judah maybe really doesn't, recognizes that there is something special about this family. She could go on with her life. She doesn't want to do that. Um, she wants to be part of this family. So she's got, a, she's got a unique way of carrying that out. So she makes herself look like a prostitute. She knows that Judah is shearing sheep, meaning it's party time. He's probably drinking and such. Um, verse 16 not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal in its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and, and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So she put on a veil. Um, she tricked him. He didn't know who she was. Uh, he purchased her as a prostitute or made a promise and gave a, a down payment of his seal and cord, which is kind of like your ID card that had... That, that had his, his seal was like something unique to him. And, um, and, and she gets pregnant, which is what she wanted. It's what she wanted uh, to happen. Okay, well, uh, verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah 
Uh, so this is later. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adamalite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Eniam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. So he's like, all right, I tried and... We're not going to pursue this anymore because don't want to be embarrassed. Um, well, uh, let's keep going. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. Oh, man, um, that's serious. So Judah, what we're seeing thus far is Judah is a man whose heart is far from God. Um, one of the clearest signs of someone whose heart is far from God is a lack of mercy. You know that? That's like, that's one of the clearest signs is a lack of mercy. Um, so what he... oh. Here's something else that might be going. He says, let her be burned to death. Judah might even be thinking, oh, good, this problem has now solved itself. Because he's probably thinking, what do I do with Tamar? I don't want to give my, my son to her. And the burning to death, that's pretty serious. Um, the burning to death idea is basically he's saying that she's guilty of, of um, what would be considered adultery at the time because she was pledged to marry um, you know, his third son. And so Judah, again, is a man who his heart is far from God. He's, he's judgmental. And that's, that's often what, what, what sin does. It, it, it leads to pride. And, and pride is, is manifested in looking down on sinners. And, well, anyways... We're going to come to the conclusion of this story real soon. So he says, kill her. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son Shayla, And he did not sleep with her again. So, uh, here's what I see here. A couple things. She's more righteous than I. Uh, again, it doesn't mean that what she did was a good act, if we're going to judge it based on actions. But once more, what you have in Tamar is someone who did something that's not good, but if you look deeper in that, um, her heart was... She was acting by faith. And that's strange. That kind of can make us uncomfortable. Sometimes we want to boil goodness and badness, righteousness and evil. We want to boil it down to lists. And actually, just at our, at our young adult group a few days ago, we were talking about people and, like, are people good? And the question that we kept coming to is, what is good? Because a lot of times, you know, we can look at someone who is doing something good over there. But what do we know? Um, God is the one who looks at the heart. And one thing we've seen is you can't, you can't judge a person and you can't judge actions based on actions alone. Um, thankfully, we don't need to judge because we're not the judge. Um, but it should cause us to pause a little bit because I can tell you that um, in any day and age, if it was found out, oh, so-and-so is pregnant because she was prostituting herself and there was even some, arguably some incest involved, we'd probably be pretty quick 
to dismiss this person as someone who is far from God. Yet, in the New Testament, when it opens up, pretty sure the first woman that's even mentioned um, is going to be Tamar in Jesus' genealogy. Um, a genealogy that's almost all just men. They make a point of mentioning certain women, and Tamar, the Canaanite, Canaanite is one of them. Um, uh, so Judah is very correct in saying she's more righteous than I. But let's go back to Judah. Because something special is happening here. Something very special. Judah, like I said, thus far in the story, has been kind of a scoundrel. And he's been someone who has departed from God, isn't walking with God. But we know that God has a very special plan for Judah. Uh, previously, Judah was the leader of sin, leading his brothers into sin. But something is going to change here. And how does it change? What did Judah do? What did God do? Here's something that I've discovered, and maybe you've discovered this too. Maybe you're discovering this right now. Um, before God can greatly use a man or a woman, before God can greatly use someone, first, he has to humble them. Oh, that's a truth that I wish wasn't a truth sometimes. <laughs> um, because sometimes it's painful. But it's the truth. Um, before God can greatly use someone, first, he needs to bring us face to face with who we are without him. So that we can come to a place where we can say, Okay, I need you. <laughs> um, we can, even as Christians, we can live this life where we have this Savior, we have this King. But like Judah, we can kind of just do our own thing, you know? But sometimes, and a lot of times, it's through hard circumstances. Sometimes it's through hard circumstances that are our own fault. We can come to a place in our lives where we can say, Okay, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. It's really all that God wants from us. You know that? It's, it's all, sometimes I'm just struck with the realization of how easy salvation is. How easy it is. It's as easy as letting him in. He's the Savior. But what did Jesus say? I didn't come for those who are well. A doctor doesn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. And what he meant by that was, I came for those who know they're sick. Those who would say, that's me, I need a savior. When I was thinking about this story, I was realizing, you know what? I don't have a whole lot of practical advice for you. Um, because the things going on in this story probably don't correlate to your life a whole lot. I mean, I imagine there's, I mean, maybe it does, but I'm, I'm betting on the surface, maybe it doesn't. Probably, probably not. There's probably not this sort of stuff going on. So what's, what are we doing here? What's my advice for you? And it just occurred to me that really week after week, the big message that I have for you and the big message that God has for us is not a message of self-help and how to change your life with practical advice. Although sometimes all that is very helpful and and sometimes it's really good to give practical advice. And maybe in the Q&A we'll have some practical advice. But this is, this, is the, this is what I want really all sermons to do above all else. Is bring you to a place in your heart where you can say, Jesus, I need you. And by faith you can see that Jesus is a Savior who is abounding in love and, and acceptance and redemption and hope. And that, that heart connection provides the life and the power by which all transformation comes. Where I could give you a bunch of practical advice, but I can tell you that if you have this, if you have this walk with the Savior, all that's going to come. How did, how did Jesus say it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest shall be added to you, and the rest will come.
I can promise you, get this part right. Get this part right and everything else will fall into place. This part meaning your relationship with God, him as savior and you as one who needs saving. Because that's what Judah, Judah finally came to that through sadly public humiliation is what it, what it required of him. But he was able to say, she's more righteous than me. And let me tell you something that happens next. So this story is placed in a very strange place in the Bible on the surface. So when you're reading um, the book of Genesis, really we've already dove into the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is going, Judah sells him into slavery, the focus is Joseph, the focus is Joseph. And then all of a sudden there's this interruption and we're learning about this stuff that's happening with Judah out over there. And then back into Joseph, back into Joseph, back into Joseph, where some scholars have actually wondered if this was placed incorrectly by some sort of redactor, some sort of person who's just kind of putting the Bible together. And basically, some people think this story was never meant to be in this place in the story. Yeah, it was. You see this in the Bible a lot. You see interruptions. And when you see an interruption in the Bible, something that seems out of place, that's God saying, hey, pay attention because there's something I want you to see here. And I'll tell you what's going on here. Judah, what was he doing last time we saw him in the Joseph narrative? He was selling his brother into slavery, right? For his own personal gain. And he was hurting his father in the process. His father loved Joseph. Um, he didn't care that his father was getting greatly hurt. He just wanted, he, he's, he was a bad dude. This happens. He realizes, I'm a sinner. She's more righteous than I. The next time you see Judah, you know what's happening? There's this long story where Joseph puts him through a test where Judah does something very noble. Um, Joseph says, basically, I'm going I'm to keep Benjamin. There's a story there. Joseph's loved son, Benjamin, and he says, the rest of you go home to Egypt, go home to, to Jacob. And Judah doesn't know who Joseph is at the time. Again, it's, it's a longer story than I have time to get into right now. But what Judah does is he says, no, take me instead. I, 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 can't, bear, I, can't, bear to have, I can't bear to go back without my father's loved son, Benjamin. I can't do it. It'll hurt my father too much. So he offers up himself, and he says, take me instead. You see how radically different that is? He's doing the opposite. You see, transformation has happened in the heart of Judah. And all it took, all it took was for him to come to a place of realizing that he needed forgiveness. Um, he needed to be humbled. God, in his love, humbled him. And this is the truth. Again, God loves us just where we are. But sometimes there's great pain in our lives because even though God loves us right where we are, he loves us too much to keep us there. So he sometimes brings us through humbling circumstances in order to do his work and to do his transformation. Judah does become a leader. Um, and, and this is really where I'm going to end this, at the end of... At the end of Jacob's life, he takes his 12 sons um, and he blesses them one by one. Well, to be honest, a couple of them get kind of more of a curse, but that's for another time. But most of them get blessings. <laughs> and, um, and there's this question, on whom will the special blessing rest? Because with each generation, there was one child who you saw had something special. And so he's blessing each one. And when he gets to Judah, he says this. Judah, Genesis 49, verse 8 through 10 is what I'm reading. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. There's something really powerful there. And um, Have you heard 
the term the Lion of Judah? That's Jesus. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. This is what this blessing is about, the one who will come from Judah. The scepter, the, the, the ruling staff, um, it's not going to depart from you. It's, there's something also interesting here. The, the Hebrew, actually, what it says, it says the scepter will not depart until Shiloh comes. And uh, Shiloh is a word that there's a lot of mystery around what it means. Um, but f- pretty much since this was written down, people have known that it means something special and it means the coming of a king. Um, the scepter will not depart until Shiloh comes, until the one to whom it belongs arises. And so all these stories written down 3,500 years ago, um, they all point to something that happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, um, Jesus, the King, the Savior. Um, It is by faith that we sinners are brought into this place. We who, um, we can all say, you know, she is more righteous than I. That's, that's, we can all come to that place and realize that we are the people who need a Savior. And Jesus, who died for the sins of the world, who was raised to new life, to be our King. Uh, Jesus is so pleased to be that Savior, to be that King, and to bring us into that special relationship, into that special blessed, beloved, parentheses, dysfunctional family um, that we, we too can be part of. Uh, I'm going to bring Neat up. I'm guessing that you have questions. Maybe not. I'm guessing you have some questions. Um, Father God, do this work in us where we can be like Judah and acknowledge our faults, acknowledge our sin, not hide it. Um, and you can do your part in just continuing to bring life and transformation, Lord. In your name, amen. I do have a question. This one came in. So if you have questions, mind you, this might be our only question, but do text them in because somebody will get back to you during the week most likely. So if you have a question, do that. But this one did come in. Um, Can you comment on how church does not seem to be a safe place to share our struggles with sin sometimes? What should our response be? What do you want to say to us as a leader about how we should respond to others' confessions of sin? That's such a great question because I feel like a big thing that we should be gathering from the book of Genesis is a culture at our church that is very, very open to sin because we know our story. We know the story of God's people. If people like Mm. Judah can be welcomed in, not simply as a sinner, but we hold Judah up to a place of honor, don't we? Um, If, oh man, it's such a good question because the great tragedy of God's people, not just, you know, now, but forever, this was the great problem with the ancient Israelites where God had actually told them, like, don't think it's because of your righteousness. I'm going to do something special in you. You're going to inherit the land. Don't think it's because of your righteousness, because it isn't. Because that is going to lead to this enormous sense of pride, and it's going to totally shatter what I'm trying to do in the nations, what I'm trying to do in the world. Um, these stories, these stories of dysfunction after dysfunction, dysfunctional family after dysfunctional family, I've been emphasizing this for a reason, because I want us together to just walk in honesty with ourselves, uh, with, with honesty in how we look at our own lives and how we look at our families' lives and how we look at the church. If a sinner comes in and doesn't feel welcome, what that means is we're all pretending, okay? We're all pretending. We're all, we're all pretending that we've got our stuff together. We're not like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and the rest of them. We're something different. No, no, no. No, no, no. We are God's special, beloved, dysfunctional family. And so when sinners come in, 
oh, wow, we're going to have a culture where you feel at home because you're among, <laughs> you're among family. Um, now, I'm almost done. <laughs> um, in the same token, it doesn't mean that we don't take sin seriously. A lot of times we have to talk about sin. But any conversations of sin are always going to happen with a foundation that you are loved, you are accepted, and only by having that foundation can transformation really happen. Um, so, yeah. And yet, at the same time, we've got people in our church who, um, like Tamar, who perhaps have been abandoned and people who've been pushed by society to the side, and they come into our church. Do you have any thoughts on how we can be loving and warm and welcoming to the broken who come in from the consequences of somebody else's sin? So once more, this is, this is always what I do. Um, it, it, there's... There is definitely good practical answers of steps that we can take as a church to do that. But always, the way that God just wired me to speak to the heart and to preach to the heart, I understand that if we get this right, we will be that welcoming, loving place. And what I mean by getting this right is if we individually have come to terms with our own sin and our own need for salvation. If we get that right, then we will be the people that the, the, that the broken feel welcome and loved around. Um, that's just always how it works. It's, it's humility that makes sinners feel welcome, and it's pride that makes them feel unwelcome. And so, um, really, the key... The, 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 the way that this is unlocked, the way that we can be a church that truly represents sinners is by ourselves simply being honest in our walk with God as sinners. Amen.